Let's pray this morning. If you didn't turn there yet, John chapter 7 is where we are. Let's pray and then we'll get into our study this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, Lord, another opportunity to worship you and to praise you. And God, we pray that as we get into your word together, that you would speak to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would teach us, and God, that it would transform and change our lives. Lord, we love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, John chapter 7, if you are just joining us, you haven't been here, uh, John chapter 6, obviously, was where we were last week, and give you context of that chapter, John chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus feeds 5,000 plus with just a few loaves of bread and two fish. And we saw the miracle of that in the sense, and looking at it in three different parts. Faith being the main focus, that faith is born sometimes out of distress. We see that Satan wants to steal our faith through fear and the, that our faith can be satisfied in Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to pick it up as things are intensifying in the book of John. From John chapter 7 to chapter 11, there is this building intensity and hostility towards Jesus. In that this is kind of the last six months of his life toward entering in or looking towards the cross. And because of that, there's this um, almost like a squeezing in. On Jesus, More people are looking to arrest him. More people are looking to uh, get a hold of him and strike him. And there's a lot of things that are happening in this time frame. It, some, of, some commentators have called this section of scripture the conflict. Uh, that this is the conflict. And everything that we're going to read is, is going to, you're going to see the, the language is all pointing towards hostility. And in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to know, be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. His Galilean ministry is going to come to an end. He's been doing a lot of ministry in the area of Galilee, along the Sea of Galilee, in Capernaum. And he healed a man. Remember, he healed a man that was lame for 38 years. He healed on that Sabbath day. And so there's a lot of hostility towards that. Jesus healed on a day that was supposed to be completely full of rest. And so he was fulfilling the law, but they saw it as he was coming against the law. That Jesus was, in fact, a rebel. He was a rebel without a cause. He was a rebel in the sense that um, he came to fulfill God's law in completion, not man's law. And, uh, and the Jews saw him as a threat to their way of life and everything that they were doing. He also claimed a lot of times to be God or to be equal with God. And that just ticked everybody off. All the Jews were like, oh, no, you didn't, girl. You did not just say, well, hold my hoops. You did not just say what I think you just said. Did you just claim to be God or equal with God? And so there's a lot of hostility towards him. In fact, he's kind of staying back in Galilee, and his brothers and sisters come to him, and they say, you need to go to Judea. Why are you hiding out? Why are things, if you want to be known so openly, why are you in Galilee? This obscure land of Galilee. Go to the central hub of the nation where you could be made known. 
so many people were looking to arrest him, but there's a feast that is nearing. And this feast, one of three that were mandatory for every Jew, they would head up to Jerusalem to be, or to take part in. There was Passover, there was the Feast of Tabernacles, and there's one more that I can't remember, but it's okay. The Feast of Tabernacles was a feast that commemorated their time of wilderness wandering. And so what they would do is everyone would move everything outside, and they would um, post up little shacks. They would make these little booths, if they would call them, and they would live outside in these little shacks all week long, and they would share the story of the exodus of their people. They would share the, the, how God provided bread from heaven. God prevented, uh, provided quail when they were hungry. God led them in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud during the day. They would share these stories to their kids and passing on this, this generational faith to their kids. So it's a great time of feasting. It's a great time of remembrance. It's after the harvest, so everyone's just stoked. And they're praying and they're asking God and also thanking God for his provision over them for the previous harvest of that season. And they would make these tents and all of this. And John is going to break down this chapter into three little sections. There's before the feast, in the middle of the feast, and the end of the feast. And so verses 1 through 6 is before the feast. His brothers and sisters, they reject him. They reject him. They mock him to his face. But before we even talk about that, we have to take a second and, and notice that Jesus had brothers and sisters. There is a belief that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That she, she had Jesus and then she had no more kids and that was it. She just was a virgin forever. That's what the Catholic Church believes. She, in fact, was not. And the reason we know that is because right here it says that he had brothers and sisters, which meant Joseph and Mary had other kids. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She was blessed among women, but she was a woman, and she had other kids. The Bible identifies who her kids were. There's a, a, one of his brothers was named James. One of his brothers was named Jude. The other was Simon. James became one of the pillars of the church. He wrote the book of James. Also, there's another one in the end of the Bible. There's one called Jude. Both brothers of Jesus that did not believe at one point but got saved. James was one of the biggest pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He's one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And he writes this letter. How many of you read the book of James? James is like a kick in the chest of all books. If you want to know what the Bible says, we're like, I don't know, I'm so confused. Read James and it'll, be, it'll put things very clear for you as how a Christian is to live. James just basically says, oh, oh, God. oh, bam, and kicks you in the chest of how you are to live. There's no like, I wonder what he meant by that. I'm so confused. It's very, very clear what James is talking about. His life was characterized by a life of unbelief. And when Jesus was crucified, it says that Jesus appeared to his brother. James had saw the resurrected Lord, and he believed. So Mary had other kids. Hate to burst your bubble, but she did. After the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which was the previous chapter, after that miracle, people wanted to know more, or they wanted more. But not more of Jesus, they wanted more food. They wanted free food. And so they're following Jesus. How many of you love free food? Does it not taste better when it's free? I don't know why. But when it's free, it's just so much tastier to our senses because I didn't have to pay for it. But these people want free food. And Jesus had said something very difficult 
to them. He had this huge following that was not following him for salvation. They were following him for free food. And Jesus said, listen, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. And everyone went, ew. 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 Like, we're not into that. Cannibalism, not into it. We're out of here. And so a lot of his followers left. Now, is Jesus saying that you need to literally nibble on my flesh? Do you need to, let me, let me tap the, my keg here and like give you a sip. That is not, you're like, ew, that is disgusting. It's cannibalism. That's not what he's saying. He was saying, unless you are satisfied by me, there is no salvation. Food is going to satisfy you for a moment, but it disappears. Only Christ can bring satisfaction. Satisfaction. That sounds like a, like a really cool boutique, Satisfaction. Ladies, you can take that and run with it if you want to make a store. Satisfaction. Satisfaction is only found in Christ. And so his own brothers and sisters rejected him as the, as the Savior. Can you imagine having Jesus as your older brother? That's hard. The guy's perfect. His room is spotless. He calls you on your sin. He loves perfectly. I mean, that would be a difficult upbringing. And now people are following your brother, and he's saying some whacked out stuff, and you're going, I know this kid. I grew up with him. He's no savior. I mean, they just had this mentality, and so they mock him to his face. Even his own family rejected him. Now, I know some of you in this room, you're the only Christian in your family. You're the only one in your family that is walking with the Lord. And you feel so alone, even in your house. Jesus sympathizes with you. Jesus empathizes with what you're going through. He himself was also rejected, even in his own home. Even in his own town, he was rejected. And my encouragement to you is keep on going. Don't stop and don't allow the ridicule or don't allow the difficulty within your home to to cause you to shriek back from the Lord. Be confident in what you believe and push forward. And Jesus says in these next verses his response to his brothers because they say to him, hey, if you really want to be known, why are you doing this stuff in such an obscure place? You need to go to Judea. And Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of that it works, or that of its works are evil. You go up to the feast, and I'm not yet going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. In Jesus' response, we're reminded that he was living for a specific hour and a specific time. He was living for a specific moment, and that moment was the cross. And everything leading up to that, Jesus is living for that moment. And so he says, my time is not yet. My clock is not your clock. I'm on a separate time frame. I am living for a specific moment, a specific time. And he says, the reason also is the world hates me. The world hated him at this time. There's going to be three groups that we're going to look at, and all of them hate him. They all hate him. And he says, the world does not hate you because it does not, or because I testify of the truth. I testify the truth of what this world does, that the works of it are evil. The world hates me because I call them on their sin. 
And Jesus said to them, do not be like, he says to his disciples, if the world hates me, and you're going to be my follower and my disciple, don't be misled in thinking that the world's not also going to hate you. If they've hated me, the Savior, will they not also hate you? And sometimes we, we can get caught up in this idea that, that we as Christians are to be loved by all. Someone once said, be careful if everyone speaks well of you because you're doing something wrong. There is this essence of, of the fact that the gospel is offensive. Not because we set out to offend people. Not that we hold up signs that says God hates gay people, which is the worst thing that anyone could do because it's not true. Does God hate you? Does God hate anyone? Does God hate gay people? Does God hate the homosexual? No. God loves everyone. God died for everyone. But here's the thing. The gospel calls them to repentance. God does not hate. In fact, he loved so passionately that he gave you the opportunity of salvation. So if you are walking in homosexuality, if you are dealing drugs, if you are lying, if you are doing these things, Jesus says, come unto me who can save your very soul who loved you so much that give you the opportunity to be saved. That is love. But the gospel tells people that what they're doing is wrong. And in the world that you're living in, people hate that. People hate that. When you tell someone, no, you're wrong. Your lifestyle is wrong. People are like, oh, thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> they hate that. Here's the line. Who are you to tell me what I'm doing is wrong? And when you say that what I'm doing is wrong, you're actually hate. You're hating on me. That's a hate crime. It's ridiculous. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. To say to someone that is walking on railroad tracks, and the railroad sign says, do not walk on tracks, and someone's just walking along, and you're going, hey, you should not be doing that. Hey, man, who are you to tell me this is wrong? Feels right, and I love it. And then the train begins to come. You're saying, hey, man, really, the train, it's you, squid, ha, you're going to die. It's going to hurt. Ah, you should really get out. I don't want to be, I don't want to rain on your parade, but what you're doing is going gonna, gonna to mess you up. And they're like, whatever, man. Don't, who are you to just say to me? Because you are just as bad, man. Whatever. Who are we to say? It's ridiculous. It absolutely is ridiculous. Someone who loves to murder. And we go to them and say, hey, bro. Jesus loves you. And what you're doing is fine. Just keep on doing it. God loves you. Just keep on sinning. Keep on murdering. God will bless you in spite of it. Would anyone ever say that? No. You would be an awful person if you said that. And completely wrong. Someone who's a perpetual liar. You're saying, hey man, it's cool. Just keep on lying. The gospel tells us that what we're doing is wrong. What the Bible tells us is that you are, in every single one of us, we are sinners in our hearts. 
We are sinners, and people hate that, to be told that they are a sinner. But guess what? It's true. It is absolutely true. And when we tell people the truth, sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth can be offensive. But ultimately, the truth will set you free, the Bible says. The truth. And when Jesus came into the world and he says, listen, no amount of law-keeping, no amount of right living, no amount of goodness will save you. You need a Savior. People said, who are you to tell me that I need a Savior? I do all of these things. I do this, that, and the other, and I am earning my way to salvation. Jesus says, you cannot do that because we're all sinners. And a sinner needs a Savior. The gospel is offensive. It is. But that, it's, it's the good news of the gospel that if you will realize that you are a sinner, there is hope for you in Christ. There's salvation in Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. It's the message of the gospel. We're a sinner. We need a savior. And salvation is found in belief and faith in Christ. And the response to the gospel is that we would turn from sin. Jesus points it out and we, we reject it and say, I don't want that, but I want God. I, I repent of it. I turn from it and I accept Jesus as my Savior. That I wouldn't stand before God someday in my own goodness, in my own good works, and say, have I made it? I stand in righteousness that is found in faith in Jesus. That's the only way in. And so people hate that. They hate that there's only one way. Don't we? You've seen those stickers on the back of every Prius? Coexist? Not to make fun of Priuses. I love Priuses. I hate the sticker. What they're saying is that all of these religions, they all, all these roads lead to God, which essentially is true. And you're going, whoa, what'd you just say? All roads do lead to God. Only one way gets you in the gate. Someday everyone will stand before God and give an account of what they've done for their life and how they have lived. Only Jesus gets you into heaven. So all roads, yeah, they do lead to God. But only one way is going to get you into heaven. And so people hate that. <laughs> we don't set out to offend people. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and, and they're like, thank you. Yeah, I get it. God does love me. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and they flip you off? Has that ever happened to you? And you're like, whoa, what's up? It has offended them. Or you, you share the gospel with someone and they, have, they gnash their teeth in anger. I was teaching a Bible study one time in this very room. And I was teaching on homosexuality and how God loves people, but homosexuality is a sin. And I watched this girl in this room gnash her teeth at me. I've never seen someone so physically angry in this room other than me. And she was like so just like, Argh! and I remember her getting up, walking out, slamming the door. This is during third service. It was like by myself. Slams the door and I'm like, did I say something wrong? I'm sorry. But the, the gospel tells us that unless there's a life change, unless you, you come under the life of Jesus, 
There is no salvation outside of him. And so sometimes, sometimes the gospel offends. We don't set out to do that, but sometimes that's what happens. The middle of the feast. Look at verse 11. It says, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. And some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? This is the middle of the feast. And there's a debate that arises. There's three different groups that are involved in this debate. The Jews, which are comprised of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And all of these groups have different theology. They have different beliefs about who God is and how we get to heaven. They have all these different beliefs about God. But here's the one common glue that holds them all together. They all hate Jesus. And so they all unite under this banner of we hate Jesus, let's destroy him. And they are seeking to arrest him. The second group of people, they are the people. Just the people that were visiting for the Feast of Tabernacles. They're there on vacation. They're there to join in the feast. And they're there wondering, why do people even want to kill Jesus? We don't even understand. This guy is good. He's doing good things. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing people. He's, he's giving sight to the blind. We're not really sure why they want to kill Jesus. And the third group are just the Jewish people that lived in Jerusalem. And they know who he is. They think he's a rebel. They think he's a troublemaker. And they're siding with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so they also are seeking to destroy him. And the debate is arising about his character and his doctrine. What he believes or what he's teaching. Because if he is, either he is who he says that he is or he's a liar. But the two things go together. Character and doctrine go together. Let me explain that. Your character is who you are when no one's around. That's who you are, who you really are. Your doctrine is what you believe. Those two things go together. What you believe about God should dictate what you do and who you are. If you believe in Jesus wholeheartedly, then what you do while you are by yourself will explain what you really believe. The two go hand in hand. So it seems kind of odd, like what character and doctrine, those two things go together. What you believe radically changes how you live. And I'm not talking about you struggling with sin, you're like, I mess up, I make mistakes, therefore I'm not a Christian. No, we all make mistakes. But if you say with your mouth that I'm a Christian and your life does not match up, your life has no evidence of a belief and faith in Christ, then I would beg to say, are you really saved? Because character and doctrine go hand in hand. And his doctrine was this. He says, I'm not just making this up myself. I'm relaying this from my father. And they asked Luke, how do we know this is even true? How do we know that the truth, that this is the truth? 
Jesus says, by obeying God's word, it proves itself true to those who sincerely do it. If you believe it and you do it, you will see that it is true. A lot of people say, prove it. If you prove it, I'll believe it. God says, believe it, and I'll show you that it's true. It's by faith. In verses 25 through 36, the Jewish residents, they kind of speak up and they say, who is this guy? Who does this guy think he is? Verse 26, but look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? They begin to think, well, isn't this guy the guy you've been looking for? And yet he's just sitting here talking openly. Why haven't you killed him yet? Maybe they know something that we don't know. Maybe he is the Christ. And they begin to call into question, if this is really him, then we shouldn't know where he comes from. We know where he was born. We know who he is. Therefore, he can't be the Christ. Let's get rid of him. And then Jesus speaks and he says, he says these things. He says, verse 28, You both know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me, he, or sent me is true, whom you do not know. You think you know me, but you don't know me, girl. You think you know me, but you do not know me. If you knew me, you would know my father, and you don't know my father. Oh, snap. Because the Jews prided themselves in their knowledge of God. Jesus just dissed them like no one has ever been dissed before. It was like your mama just came out, and the people went, oh, just knuckles begin to crack, and they're like, oh, here we go. Here we go. Where's the cross? They were, they were upset at what he just said. In verse 37, we have the end of the feast. The end of the feast. It says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And you're thinking, well, that's a nice statement. That's cool. Well, let me explain something to you. This is the end of the feast, the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. For seven days, every day, the priest would go down. He would walk out of the city. He would go down to a river. He would draw water from this river from a gold pitcher. He would bring it back up into the temple. He would pour it over the altar for seven days, and he would be, begin to sing and, and dance in this altar. Before the altar of the Lord, he would sing Psalm 115 through Psalm 118. If you look at your Bible, just Psalm 115 through 118, it's all of these Hallel Psalms. It's these praise songs of the glory of God and what God would do in delivering his people and saving his people. All of this stuff. And on the last day of the feast, which is where we are, it's the last day, everyone would come out and they would watch the priest do this. And the priest would symbolically, on the last day, he would go down and draw, but he wouldn't draw any water. He would, he would fake it. He would pretend to draw water, and he would bring it up. Remember, they're commemorating their wilderness wandering, how God provided water from a rock. And so they would bring water up, and on the last day, he would fake it. He would bring water up, and he would pretend pour it out over talking about the water that would come from God, that God would bring them the Messiah. Okay, It's at this very moment. 
It's completely silent. Everyone there, everyone's watching. No one is talking. And Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Talk about the worst possible timing to speak up. His disciples are all like kind of somber, like, thank you, God. Feast of Tabernacles. Man, this is so, Jesus, this is sick. This is rad. This is the last day. And then he's seeing, no, you did not just say what I think you just said. What Jesus just said is to fulfill what has been going on this whole week. It's about me. I am the fulfillment of the ritual that you have been doing. And if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. What Jesus is saying is here is I offer you something that water cannot offer you. We all need water, right? We live in California. We're in a drought. We understand that all of our lawns are dying. We need water. We need it bad. Without it, we die. Your body is made up of water. It's very important that we have it. Not soda. We need water. Without it, we die. We need it every single day. But yet we have to drink it every single day. Jesus says, I am living water. Meaning I will give you eternal life. Something that water cannot do. You, we all need water. We'll drink it our whole life, but eventually we'll all die. Jesus says, I will offer you water that will give you life and that eternal. I am him. I am living water. And without me, not only will you die physically, but you will die spiritually for all of eternity. Experiencing a death in hell for all eternity. Can you imagine the intensity of this moment of what just happened? And what he says is, whoever comes unto me, if anyone thirsts, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said, John says, this is a picture. What Jesus was saying is, as we believe in Christ... What will flow from us is rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit will come into our heart, make our heart his home, and out of us will flow a life that is lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is an intense moment. And anyone who says, like, Jesus never claimed to be God, holy moly, what did he just claim to be at this very moment? The only way of salvation. The only way of salvation. And look at their response. Verse 40, if you look at the chapter or the section heading in your Bible, mine says, who is he? The people look at him and they go, who is this guy? Who could this possibly be? Listen, if you do not know Jesus, and you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you have never accepted him in your heart, let me tell you, you need Jesus in your life. Not just to enhance it and make it better. I'm telling you, you need it so that you don't go to hell. That's why you need Jesus in your life. If you're thirsty in this room, you, you've tried so many things and you are just left wanting. It never satisfies you. Jesus, the reason is because Jesus satisfies. 
In the previous chapter, he says, I am the bread of life. Here he says, I am living water. Without those two things, there is no life. You cannot survive without either. Same is with Christ. You cannot survive without him. You can try. It is so much better in Christ. That's all I got. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to look at your word, to hear from you. Jesus, if there is anyone in this room this morning...